Psalms 89. Let the heavens praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness in the assembly of the holy ones. For who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord? A God greatly to be feared in the council of the holy ones and awesome above all who are around him. O Lord, God of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you. You rule the raging sea. When its waves rise, you still them. The heavens are yours. The earth also is yours. The world and all that is in it, you have founded them. The north and the south, you have created them. You have a mighty arm. Strong is your hand. High your right hand. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. It's great to have a God like that, isn't it? Faithful, powerful, loving, gracious, omniscient God. Let's pray to Him. God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. God three in one. High and exalted, reigning for all time over all. Perfect in every judgment, righteous in every act, abounding in love and in grace, slow to anger, quick to forgive, transcendent in your exalted holiness, yet imminent, close as our breath and our heartbeat. Thank you. We are just rejoicing, Lord, that we get to rejoice in you together here this morning. Something powerful in that. Grateful for it. We're thankful, Lord, that when we come corporately together, that we have just an incredible platform, an open door as we come through the name of Jesus Christ to come right to your throne. Absolutely believe that you, through the person of your Holy Spirit, are right here with us moving among us and in us this morning and that where you are is the answer to every need and question and hurt and struggle and heartache and so we're just looking to you we're frail feeble beings on a sin wrecked planet and we need your help But it's not like we are taking the initiative to pursue you. You've pursued us. You've drawn us here. We're just responding to you. Accept our praise today. Speak to us even more today through your word as we here in this room open up your word and 
talk about your grace. Pray for all of the children's rooms and the gatherings there from little tykes all the way up to middle school and just that in each one of those classrooms that the truth of your love, your grace would penetrate hearts, plant seeds deep within them that'll bring fruit for eternity. Thank you. So I pray that for this church. I pray that for every gathering of believers around this city that makes up the true church, the church of Jesus Christ, that global body of believers united around the person, the deity of Jesus, and the willing, redeeming sacrifice of Jesus. Minister to them today, Lord, all over this city, 250, 60 strong those houses of worship. Let your presence be there in power today. Speak your truth. Bring healing to brokenness. and Correction to waywardness. Security to doubt. and Answers to questions. Lord, just always aware of my insufficiency in doing what I'm about to do. But also aware of your all-sufficiency to, to help me do what I'm about to do. And know that you have called me to this role. Humbly, I just ask you, Lord, to empty me of myself. Fill me with your spirit. Send forth your truth in just the way you want it shared. Let it go right into the ears and down into the hearts and sanctify this people with your truth. Save those that are not saved with your truth. Truth about your son, Jesus Christ. We give you the glory. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. May be seated. Romans chapter 5, verse 20. Last half of that verse. We covered last week, which says, But where sin increase. Grace abounded all the more. Talked about the two words there between sin's increase and grace abounding. Different words for increase and abounding. Much greater word in reference to the advancement of grace, that word abounding in the Greek, much stronger word than the word for the increase of sin. Not only a stronger word, but a word that has a prefix on the front of it in the Greek. A prefix that's not comparative language, but that is superlative language. 
it would be very equivalent to our word super. That it is grace that super abounds. That where sin increases, grace super abounds all the more. That's what Paul teaches in Romans 5.20. So last week, we talked about the what about the superabounding grace of God. What does the superabounding grace of God give us? And I shared with you five things that the superabounding grace of God gives us. Today, I want to talk to you about the when. I want to talk to you about the when of the superabounding grace of God. What I want us to do is I want us to stand on that apex of that mountain of God's superabounding grace. I want us to get elevated onto that where we climbed up to last week, and I want us to look back down through history. And I want to draw your attention to some events, some moments in history that became monuments to God's superabounding grace. I want to point out to you some individuals of history whose lives become great illustrations, living examples, powerful examples about the superabounding grace of God. So this Sunday is going to be the when, the moments when, just a few, there could be endless discussion here, but just a few moments when the superabounding grace of God broke out like a flood. When the sin increased. And what I'm going to ask you to do is, as I illustrate it with these historical examples, true accounts, I want you to help me illustrate that. I really believe that this concept here is built right into the text. We can show this by just doing something very simple this morning about the superlative language here of the abounding grace and the increasing sin. As I go through each one of these examples, I'm going to come to a point in the example where I'm going to say the first half of that phrase, but where sin increased. And what I want you to say in response is, grace superabounds. Would you just practice that? But where sin increased, Let's practice that again. Put a little ump in gusto into it. But where sin increased. And so as we go through this this morning, if I see one, someone lacking gusto, I'll have you come up here and demonstrate that before the body, okay? You see, my voice, here's the illustration, here's the power of the illustration. My voice represents the increase of sin, one voice. The voice of the multitude and the increased volume represents the superabounding grace of God. That's what Paul is teaching here in this text. First of all, let me take you to the garden of God's superabounding grace. We're going to go all the way back in history, all the way back to the very genesis of time. 
We're going to look at the moment when sin increased, when Adam and Eve took the fruit of the tree that God had said not to take. And some of you might be thinking, well, Brad, that's only, it's not much of an increase. It's only one sin. But think of it this way. It was from zero human sin to some. That's an incredible increase. It was from non-existent human sin to existent human sin. That is an incredible increase. And not only that, it was a direct command that God had given face-to-face with Adam and said, do not eat of this tree. So it was a great sin. And what happened? What happened when Adam and Eve took of the tree? Did God lash out in His wrath and anger? Did God do what His holy justice demanded and just completely wipe them out physically and separate them from Him eternally, spiritually, which would be the demands of His holy justice. Folks, here's the incredible reality here. At the very moment, the very moment when sin went from non-existence in the human race to existence, where sin increased at the very moment, God gave the great promise For it was at the judgment of sin, Genesis 3.15, that God said, a seed of woman is going to come. And that great promise of that seed, that child, that man that would come, what he was going to do is he's going to be the Savior. He's going to be the one that crushes the serpent's head. He's going to defeat sin and the enemy. It's going to be A complete victory. The crushing of a head is a fatal wound. He's going to crush the serpent's head. It's going to be a complete victory. He gave that promise at the very genesis of sin. Not only did he do that, but Adam and Eve were stripped in shame because of their sin, naked before God came the realization. And what God did to further paint a picture of the deliverer that was to come is that He shed the first blood of history. He took an animal and He sacrificed the animal. He spilled the animal's blood. He took the skins of the animal and He used the skins to cover the nakedness and the shame that came from sin. So in the very moment of sin's genesis came the great promise. And folks, it's the great promise upon which every other promise of God depends. If it is not fulfilled, we have no promises of God. So there in the Garden of Eden... Adam and Eve discovered that where sin increases, oh, we had a few right here in the front that are paying attention. 
in the garden, they discovered that where sin increases, yeah, there you go, there you go. Man, we do this by the end, I'm going to have the most responsive sermon I've ever preached in my life. That's the garden of God's superabounding grace. Now let me take you to the mountain of God's superabounding grace. Track down history for a while. God has delivered millions strong from bondage in Egypt, led them through the wilderness to Mount Sinai, his holy mountain. He has called Moses alone to come up on the mountain and there with Moses in his presence on the top of the mountain, God is carving out of the granite cliff face two tablets of stone and carving upon them his ten laws. And while he was doing that in real time, as the law of God was being etched in stone on the top of the mountain, the law of God was being broken in debauchery and wickedness at the bottom of the mountain. As God carved those stones and His law into them, He was looking down on a wild party of sin that broke every one of the laws. And here's what else God gave Moses. Here's the moment of sin escalating. God gave Moses not only the Ten Commandments, but God gave Moses a set of ceremonial laws, and he gave them a blueprint for a tabernacle. He gave them a system of sacrifice, and the purpose of that system was so that this rebellious, wicked people could still have God in his holiness dwelling in their midst. The only way he could remain with them and so he sketched out this sacrificial system, and then he appointed priests, Moses' brother Aaron, to be the high priest from which the lineage of priests would come. The priests would mediate the relationship between this holy God and the sinful people through the act of animal sacrifice substitutionary payment for sin so that through that process the holy anger and wrath of God would be held back and not break out and destroy them. God's abounding grace providing a way in the midst of this great sin so that he could still be in relationship with his people. And what was the high priest doing while Moses was receiving the law and the ceremony and the blueprint of the tabernacle? What was the high priest doing 
that was going to be the lineage from which all the priests would come. He was fashioning a golden calf so that the people in their debauchery could prostrate themselves before it and rebel aggressively and openly against the God who watched from the mountain. What an incredible example of the truth, an illustration of the truth that where sin increases. Yeah, it does. It does. The garden of God's superabounding grace, the mountain of God's superabounding grace. Let me show you a couple of the great sinners now of history. First one, man full of self-confidence and yet empty of commitment. Remember Peter? Peter was a man that had walked with God, walked with Jesus Christ, talked with Jesus Christ, spent three years continually at his side, watching him perform his miracles and speak his profound words of truth. And then on the night before his crucifixion, Peter, with great boldness and great passion, said, Jesus, if everyone else deserts you, oh, nod me, nod me. In fact, Jesus, I'll die for you. I will die for you. Late Thursday night, then early Friday morning, just before the rooster crowed to announce the dawn, from this passionate, bold bragger's lips fell three denials in rapid succession. Escalating in their passion with each denial until the last time with vehement oaths and cursing trying to drive his point home saying, I don't even know that man. What did God do? Did he break out in wrath and anger against the braggart? No. We see him a few weeks later, resurrected Lord Jesus, restoring Peter, calling him back into service. Peter went back to the boats, back to his fishing. His ministry was washed up. And then there's Jesus kicking open the floodgates of grace, grabbing up Peter in the swell and the tide of that grace and saying, Peter, I want you. I want you. Peter, not only that, I want you to lead, to care for my lambs and my sheep. Peter became the recognized leader there of the first century church of the apostles. The man who bragged the loudest and fell the hardest 
other than Judas became the one that God exalted the highest. Why? Because where sin increases, yes, it does. Yes, it does. That's the braggart. Now let me tell you about the great antagonist. Turn your attention to a traveler. He's on horseback. Clothed in robes of dignity. Caravan with him. Face set with determination. Carrying in his satchel a letter of authority from those in authority. Letter granting him permission and authority to use whatever force necessary, be it beatings, be it imprisonment, be it death, to stop what they call the uprising, the rebellion. And then all of a sudden, a light flashes, a light from heaven brighter than the noonday sun and knocks this dignified, recognized, scholar, the greatest antagonist to the church, knocks him to the ground, blinds him, and a few moments later, he finds out that the voice, the penetrating voice that he is hearing is in fact the one who started the uprising, the one that was supposed to be dead. And what did the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ come to do? Did he come to strike a blow to his great antagonist? No, he came to kick open the floodgates of grace and let it sweep out like a mighty ocean down to that road toward Damascus and catch up Saul who would become Paul and carry him up and exalt him to be the greatest theologian the church has ever known, the most effective strategist, the worldwide witness and the prolific author of Scripture, 13 of his letters you're holding in your hand if you're holding a Bible. Here's what he wrote to his young protege, Timothy. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, the grace of our Lord overflowed. It superabounded. That's the word picture there for me. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Why would God choose a world-class sinner like Saul, here's why he tells us in the very next verse that he writes, 1 Timothy 1.16, Paul writes, but I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, the foremost sinner, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Let me give you uh, maybe a loose paraphrase to that 
statement there. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 16. Paul said, Jesus Christ chose me, the foremost of sinners, to display the truth that where sin increases. Yes, yes. Now a man who later in life would call himself the slave of slaves. We're going to leave biblical history now. We're going to go to the 18th century. Man's name is John. John had a godly mother. Godly mother who taught him diligently the scriptures. And then... Tragically, when he was seven years old, his mother died. When he became a young man, he enlisted in the British Navy, going to be a seaman. But he was a wild young man, and he quickly found out that he was not suited for the discipline and the authority he found in the British Navy, and so he became a deserter. And he boarded a ship to sail to Africa. And later in his life, here is what he wrote about the purpose for that voyage. He said, I sailed to Africa so that I could sin my fill. I sailed to Africa so that I could sin my fill. He was taken in by a slave trader who began to mistreat him. Not only did the slave trader mistreat him, but his wife, the slave trader's wife, hated him all the more. And when the man of the house was gone, she would treat him as brutally as possible. For months at a time, he would be forced to eat his food off of the dirt floor without his hands, beaten if he used his hands. Weak and emaciated, he finally escaped that environment and he made his way to the coast and he built a signal fire. And a passing ship saw the fire and sent a rowboat out and they took him on board. And the captain Shortly thereafter, found out that he had, an he had a young man who had experience in the British Navy. He knew something about navigation, and so he made John a ship's mate. But even in that incredibly gracious position, his wild activity surfaced. The captain left the ship for some reason, and while he was gone, John broke into the captain's rum closet and drank his fill. Captain returned, found out about the crime, struck John, and in hitting him, John in his drunken state fell over the railing of the ship and into the sea. A sailor, acting quickly, really the only reason this John was saved from death, he took a boat hook and he thrust it through John's thigh, basically harpooned him there, drug him back into the ship. Wound was so severe, 
that it was said of John that for the rest of his life he could put his fist into the scar of that wound. Shortly thereafter, a violent storm gripped the ship in its tempest. A storm that was so severe that the that the boat was being swamped, taking on large amounts of water, and they sent, the captain sent this rebel down into the hull of the ship to man the pumps to try to keep the ship afloat, trying to pump as much water out as was coming in. It was a battle for his life. For days, the battle ensued. And as he did that work there in the hull of that ship, battling for his life, the scriptures that his mother taught him began to work through his mind. Intentionally selected scriptures. And he saw as those scriptures began to work through his mind as he feverishly sought to pump out the water. The truth of God was being pumped into his conscience and into his heart, and he saw the plan. He saw salvation there in the Scriptures. He saw the grace of God revealed in the truth of God's Word, and there in the hull of that ship, he cried out for salvation, and God saved him spiritually. And God not only saved him spiritually, God saved the ship and he walked out of the hole of that ship. And he became one of the most respected men of the Church of England, leaders of the Church of England. Chaplain of the Parliament. Preached before the king. You see, John found out that where sin increased, his full name was John Newton. You knew his story probably before you came in here without even knowing that you knew it. For he wrote his life story down in some powerful lines and put it to music. Would you sing the first verse with me? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now when found was found. See, you knew the story. One of the great sinners of history discovered the truth about the superabounding grace of God. Now go to the island of God's superabounding grace.
We've looked at the garden. We've looked at the mountain. Let's look at the island. And this is a story, a story that many of you probably know the precursor to. It's been made in, written into a book, true story, made into a feature-length film. It's called The Mutiny on the Bounty. Mutiny on the Bounty. Well, what happened following that story, as Paul Harvey would say, this is the rest of the story. It's the rest of the story. Those nine mutineers took that ship and they put it on an island called Pitcairn. On that island were six native men, ten native women, and one 16-year-old native girl. Somehow, one of the ship's crew figured out how to distill alcohol from some of the plants there on the island. And what ensued was a tragic story story of fits of outrage and drunkenness, of jealousy, of hatred, of illness, of murder, until all but one of the mutineers was alive. That mutineer then found a Bible in the ship's cargo. His name was Alexander Smith, and he began to read that Bible. And as he read that Bible, God opened up to him the truth about his grace and how his word could bring health and life, and he was so captivated by the grace of God through the truth of God that he decided he was going to set up on that little island, that little group of people, a society based upon the truth that he was reading. 20 years later, a ship found this remote, isolated people. And the report that they brought back was of a society they had never seen before. No crime, no hospital, no illiteracy, no disease. All were safe, all were secure. It was a seemingly perfect society. Because the truth of God's grace in His Word took one of history's great sinners and broke out like a flood. And Alexander Smith and the people of that island found out that where sin increases, there is so many other illustrations. One of the great exclamation points or many of them of history, we could look at the revivals of history. Times when the church, it seemed like, was backed up against the wall where sin was reigning supreme and no new converts were being added into the church. 
stories about the first great awakening, the second great, you know, many revivals of history. One in Wales, a young man by the name of Ethan Roberts, got a vision from God, and he said, in that vision, I saw all of Wales lifted up to heaven. He began to gather his friends, other young men around him to pray for the revival. And the revival came. And uh, just as God had showed him, 100,000 souls were brought into the church in the midst of a time when the church was up against it, God broke out in His grace and brought in a mighty flood of harvest. There's stories, incredible stories that you could read about. The police force didn't have anything to do. There was no crime. Alcohol consumption plummeted. Probably one of the funniest stories, coal miners, mules down in the coal mines, they quit obeying their taskmasters because the demeanor changed and no longer was it yelling and cursing at the mules and the mules couldn't figure out what they were supposed to do. And when that revival broke out in Wales, eventually it spread through Great Britain. Then Europe heard about it. And when they heard the fires of revival left, leapt up in Europe, same thing in America, Brazil, Chile. It swept across a large portion of our globe because where sin was increasing, Obviously, the greatest moment of sin's apex, folks, the greatest moment, or maybe do it the opposite way, the deepest, darkest moment of sin's heyday became the pinnacle of God's superabounding grace. Go with me now to the hill of God's superabounding grace. The hill where the very Son of the living God, holy and righteous, loving and gracious, drug a cross to the top of the hill, willingly laid himself on it, and those around him in hatred and anger nailed him to the beams, lifted him up, stripped in shame, hurling their insults and their mockery. Sin's blackest day. But then when the son gave up his spirit and willingly bowed his head in death, there was an earthquake. And God reached down and he split the veil of the temple there in Jerusalem in two, showing open access now to any who would come through his son. The graves split open and many righteous people who had died came back to life and began walking around the city 
telling about the grace of God. Because where sin abounds, yes, it does. Yes, it does. So points of application. We didn't climb that mountain just to be entertained by some great stories of history. That is never what the Word of God is given for. It's meant not to increase our knowledge, but to change our lives. Worship team, would you come? What I want to say to you is, if you walked in here this morning and you carrying your weight of sin and guilt and condemnation, if in your life the sin has been on the uprise and you look and say, I have no hope, how could God ever save me? Well, that's the way He works. Grace came because of sin. You see, the truth of those stories and the truth of God's Word is this. Sin never keeps grace back. It doesn't have the power to do that. Because grace superabounds all the more. And it breaks out like a mighty flood from heaven. And it sweeps away everything that stands in its path meant to block it. Sin can never stop the grace of God in the life of the one putting their faith in Jesus. You can do that this morning. You can walk out of here washed clean, swept up and lifted up by the grace of God. Maybe you know, maybe you're a believer, the grace of God has already captivated you. Maybe you're a believer that has a lot of unsaved friends, unsaved family members. I encourage you as we close this service to beg God for them. Beg God to give you an opportunity to share His grace with them. Would you please stand? Father, Oh, Father, to you alone, Lord, belongs all glory and power and praise. I do not understand why you would love me, why you would love us. so that you would exchange your wrath for your superabounding grace. But I know that you did. I know that you do. And I know that your son is the only way. And I'm asking you, for those that are here this morning that have never had the grace of God through their faith in Jesus, come rushing through their lives, super abounding in their lives, would you do that now unto salvation? Give them faith to believe in Jesus. Help them to see what John Newton saw in the hull of that ship after he had drunk his fill of sin. 
to get a thirst for the grace of God and to drink their fill from the ocean of God's grace. Do that, Lord. Then for those, Lord, that friends, family members, mothers, fathers, sons, daughters, grandmothers, grandfathers, grandsons, granddaughters, neighbors that are not saved, have not experienced the grace of God. Hear our prayers, Lord. Listen to their names as we speak them with the lips of our heart. Do a work, God. Do a mighty work. I'm also, Lord, convinced I'm convinced that what we need in this nation, in this city, and in this church, Lord, we need revival. We need a mighty outpouring of your Spirit to come over us like a mighty flood. Sweep away all the chaff and Lift us up, plant us firmly, use us powerfully. Pray that in Christ's name. Amen.